Hello and welcome to Mobility Minute, a bite-sized podcast for people on the move. I'm your host, Justine Rusho from the Greater Mercer TMA. Every week, you'll find an episode about transportation and mobility that you can listen to when you're on the go. We also interview some pretty amazing people who work in different corners of the transportation space. Whether you drive, bike, walk, skate, roll, or take public transit, these episodes will guide you through the world of planning and transportation in New Jersey as we talk about how to make it safer, easier, and greener to get around in Mercer and Ocean County. Today's episode is about air quality and the intersection of transportation and the environment. To help me talk about it, I interviewed my friend Sean Green in November 2021 and asked him to share some of his thoughts and expertise. Our conversation was so good that I had to split it up into two parts. Part one focuses on the nitty gritty of air quality programs and how our region collaborates to meet air quality standards. We also talk about how we can all do our part to contribute to that. He talks about some pretty timeless things. So whether you're listening to this in 2022 or beyond, I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. Hey everyone, we are here today with Sean Green from the DVRPC or the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission. Sean is the Air Quality Programs Manager and we are so lucky to have him on the podcast today and I'm so excited to pick his brain. Sean, would you like to say hello? Hi, good morning. Hi, I'm so excited to have Sean here because he's one of my first professional friends in the planning world and he's wonderfully skilled and passionate about something I am also very passionate about which is public outreach and making information accessible. And it's very interesting because his department is very environmentally focused, very data focused, very science heavy. So Sean, can you tell us a bit about what you do in your job as air quality programs manager? Maybe an overview of some of the initiatives that you oversee? Sure, so our our program here has, I'm gonna call them three prongs. Uh, We have uh, a bit of a regulatory focus I coordinate some voluntary programs, and then I also provide assistance to our, our planning partners, which include our member counties, which are five counties in southeastern Pennsylvania, including Philadelphia, and four in southern New Jersey from you know Mercer, Burlington, uh, Camden, and Gloucester. And so uh, that third prong is providing them with, with technical assistance and, and ideas and, and grant assistance in, in um improving air quality for their, uh, for their residents. And sometimes that takes me into working with our uh, healthy communities planners here at DVRPC. Sometimes that includes working with the state agencies uh, to, to identify issues and, and you know, hopefully point to some, some good solutions. Um, but overall the program, you know, uh, even in the regulatory programs, we try and be as cooperative and supportive of our planning partners as possible. Can you tell me a bit more about the regulatory side? Um, that's, I think, one of the things that is a little vague for most people, including me. <laughs> sure. So, you know, uh, uh, a lot of times I like to call myself a master of arcane regulations mm. because, you know, some of the some of the requirements are are, are very complicated and confusing. Um, but number one, early on in the Clean Air Act. Uh, you know, our government recognized that transportation is a major source of air pollution. And the Clean Air Act is, is such a fantastic piece of, of, of legislation because it, it not only recognizes that transportation is a source of air pollution, but also provided some, you know, regulations to get at reducing those sources of, of, of pollution. 
So uh, you may or may not know, DVRPC is responsible for creating a long-range transportation plan, you know, 25-year plan of, of, of transportation improvements. Um, but in the short term, we're also responsible for creating a transportation improvement program, which we call the TIP. Okay. And that's what I'm going to call it throughout this conversation, that's right? Good. It's good to get the jargon out of the way and then use it for the rest of the podcast. But so the TIP or the Transportation Improvement Program, is that something that's standard for many state or regional agencies? Yeah. Yeah. So urbanized areas across the country all make a, or all create a TIP. And that's their, their four-year program of, of transportation uh, projects, both transit and highway. And so the Clean Air Act said that, you know, those projects included in that tip have to demonstrate that they're not going to make air quality worse or cause future violations of the Clean Air Act. Now I have to be, um, I have to go back and clarify, I apologize, but that process uh, applies to areas that aren't meeting the federal health-based air quality standards. There's a lot that goes into this. There is a lot. And I apologize for missing that very important step. So EPA looks at air quality standards and when ambient or background air is not meeting those standards, then the planning agency or the Department of Transportation has to demonstrate that the transportation projects in their TIP and long-range plan aren't going to make those violations worse or, or aren't going to impede the region's ability to meet those standards. How do you assure that? How do you measure that? It sounds very vague. It sounds very up in the air. <laughs> Pardon my pun. It is. And to make it more complicated, these are regional background ambient air quality standards. So it's set at a level that it's expected for everybody to experience it, right? So everyone in, in the region, it's background air quality. It's not localized sources of pollution, right? right. So it's even more high level, big scale kind of thinking. And so there are two kinds of ways we look at this. There are air quality monitors on the ground, and this is very general, you know, one in each county, except in places like Philadelphia has, has a number uh, more air quality monitors, but mm -hmm. generally, you know, across the country, you know, generally one in a, one in a county, right. and that'll tell you the conditions, you know, that you're, that you're looking for, for these background uh, air pollutants. And then to ensure that the projects and the tips and the plan aren't going to cause future violations or impede our, our progress towards meeting those standards, we model those transportation projects right. and we model the emissions from those projects. And that's how we demonstrate um, from that modeling whether we'll, we're, we're, we're making progress. Right. Because the state makes limits to how, much, how many or how much always get that wrong, right? <laughs> to, to, to the level of emissions that, that, can, be, that can come from those projects. Right. So the states establish limits because they model where do those limits need to be in order to meet those standards in the, in the future. Right. And so that, project, that process is called transportation conformity. Okay. So if we show that the projects and our tips and plan aren't going to go above those state established limits, our, our tips and plans are uh, determined to be in conformity right. with the state plan. I have a question about, you know, finding this conformity or determining the level of, you know, emissions. You have a service area that is greatly varied. You know, you have highly urbanized spaces like Philadelphia 
and you have suburban and mostly residential spaces. And those kinds of built environments or those kinds of neighborhoods have greatly varying levels of air quality, I I would imagine. So how do you reconcile that difference? How do you make that harmonious? So I, I think the first thing to do is to recognize exactly what you said, that people experience air, air pollution where they live and where they're active. And that is important for planners to recognize. Hmm. Um, this transportation conformity process, you know, we start at the high level, background air quality. Because if you start from a place where background air quality is bad, that is only going to exacerbate right. as you get local, as you ex- how you experience local conditions or how your, your health conditions are impacted by local conditions. Right. So, you know, the Clean Air Act requires we do this transportation conformity process, address background air quality. The whole DVRBC region, all nine counties are in non-attainment or don't meet those federal health-based standards for ground level ozone. Mm. And they've recently not met those standards for fine particle pollution, which is very tiny pieces of particles. Um, so we're required to demonstrate conformity for the whole region for those mm-hmm. two for those two pollutants, right? Address that background air quality as a first step. Historically, lead was a horrible air pollution problem in the United States because there was lead, lead and gasoline, you right. know, it, and and lead was everywhere um, from our cars. That was coming from from gas. The lead and right. the gas. Lead and the gasoline, right? Okay. It was also lead and paint and some other and, and other places. It's amazing, right? we're still alive. Clean Air Act addressed that. And now lead is not in our background air because the Clean Air Act addressed lead, you know, in gasoline and paint and in great progress since 1970. Right. So there's kind of like the model test case of how we we can do it. Well, there you go. Address that background air. Now, on the local level, I also help coordinate a funding program. We call it CBAC. It's the Congestion Mitigation and Air Quality Program. It's a funding program that helps our local, I'm not going to say communities, it could be our counties, it could be our cities, it could be our municipalities, it could be the departments of transportation. It helps our local partners address air pollution from congestion. So that's another program that the government makes available to try and address. Now, of course, that contributes to regional background air quality, but that also addresses you know, uh, localized conditions of of, of pollutants that can come from transportation. Mm -hmm. When I had talked about providing assistance to our planning partners, um, we can help with things like, you know, with, with, with studies, not necessarily with air quality monitoring studies, but looking at, at areas of congestion, looking at areas with high truck traffic to maybe we can make some recommendations um, on, on how to reduce congestion that might improve those localized air quality, con- you know, air quality conditions. Oh, you're talking about traffic now, traffic congestion. Traffic congestion. Sorry. <laughs> so there's a lot that you need to know about the context of a specific place, whether they're having issues with traffic congestion, whether they're near an industrial area. So what are the kinds of issues that you face in a place like Philadelphia, where it's highly urbanized? And how do you solve those kinds of issues in relation to air quality? So I think it's important to point out that, um, you know, air quality, very complex issue, can come from a number of sources and a number of different areas, right. even sometimes outside of our region, outside of our states, you know, um, and DVRBC really is charged with focusing on transportation right. sources. 
so, so the industrial sources, the power plants, those kind of things are really outside our purview. The state department's environmental protection okay. address those. So, so we start, we are looking at the transportation sources okay. and number one, in my mind, issue with air pollution and transportation sources is, is emissions from, from heavy duty diesel vehicles, mm -hmm. because, you know, cars have actually gotten fairly clean in recent years. Um, the EPA sets mileage standards, sets emission standards, and our passenger vehicles have been getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner every year. Mm -hmm. You know, and that happens when a new model year comes out, you know, they, they meet those better and better standards. Now, now diesel engines can last for years and years, even decades. So even though newer diesel vehicles are getting cleaner, there may still be old ones on the road from 1990s, 1980s, you know, those kind of things. One of the things we, we try to help is to uh, use that CMAC or that congestion mitigation air quality funding and other sources of funding to help people replace those engines. Oh, that's cool. So that, so that they're cleaner, right? Um, we know we're going to need tractor trailers and trucks and port cargo handling equipment and locomotives, right? We know we're going to need those things, but we can help improve air quality by helping those people or provide funding or assist with funding in replacing those and buying new engines, right. which since 2010 are much, much cleaner right. than they were previously. I mean, precipitously cleaner than they were uh, before. And, and so that's one thing that we can do is we can, we can help with that funding. We can help with that, that, that planning. So you've actually answered one of my questions that I was about to ask, how has air quality changed or how has it not changed since the pandemic and people have been getting off the road? But I suppose, I think there's probably more of that since people have been getting home deliveries and in the past two years. What can you say about that? So again, very insightful, very <laughs> insightful question. You know, I, I wouldn't let cars off the hook, right? I said right. they're getting cleaner, but when there are, you know, tens of thousands of them, they, they catch up, right. right? They catch up in their share of the pollution. Now, since we've been recovering from the, 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 the pandemic, again, generally in a region-wide look, we've seen car traffic is, is starting to rebound. You know, um, we don't necessarily have as bad rush hours, but we see traffic kind of spread throughout the day, you know, and-, and Is and, that better or worse? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. You know, when, <laughs> when vehicles sit in traffic- that's when they pollute the most, Yeah, you know, this, the, 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 the idling, the stop and go, you know, so, so congestion is the worst for air quality, Right. but to your point, the deliveries and truck traffic, you know, really was not, you know, those folks weren't staying at home. They were delivering us goods when we were staying at home. Right. And so, um, you know, that truck traffic is, uh, rebounded early and, and is still pretty high. And this kind of gets to our voluntary programs that it help coordinate. Regulations go to a certain point and help us improve air quality, you know, kind of the big picture stuff. But every day we can't lose sight that we are also responsible for our piece of the pollution pie in things that we do every day. Right. You know, um, just because we're not driving our store, our, our car to the store to pick up our items, we can still coordinate our orders to reduce truck trips to our home. Right. You know, we can do things like making sure that our orders are consolidated and they all come in one drop off, you know, from the delivery service. Right. Or we can have our uh, deliveries delivered to a, a local drop-off point so that those deliveries all happen at one point that might be convenient for us to go to, but now the, the vehicle's not driving through our neighborhood, not making you know 20 stops 
it can make, you know, maybe three or four stops. And think about it, is that stop and go traffic, right? That stop and go that makes vehicles, you know, it's more polluting. And then you're also cutting down those number of stops and the, uh, the amount that that vehicle is driving. That's amazing. Right. So those are very, very simple, painless things that we can do as individuals right. that can contribute to um, improving air quality, especially as we move into this environment where, you know, e-commerce and home delivery is becoming more and more prevalent. I like that you're putting an emphasis on easy, simple, and painless examples of how we can do our part. So what do you think are some common sense, everyday things that we can do that can improve air quality? So, you know, one of the main points when, I, when I'm talking about air quality with folks is to try and drive home the point that conservation you know, you think about that term conservation, saving things instead of spending them, right? Right. Instead of using them, conservation mm -hmm. is not just good for the environment. Oftentimes it's good for your wallet. <laughs> you know, you're not just saving the environment, you're saving money. I like if that. If you turn your thermostat down, you know, just a few degrees, you're not only saving the emissions from either the gas or the oil that you burn to heat your home or the electricity that's generated to heat your home. You're right. certainly saving on those emissions and you're saving on sometimes non-renewable fuels. Right. Um, most of the time, non-renewable fuels, right? You're not only saving those things, but right. you're also paying less in your heating and electricity bill, right? So, so, so super simple steps, saving energy in your home. You know, listen, it doesn't make any sense in the world to drive a 3000 pound car a half a mile to pick up a two gallon, uh, you know, a two pound <laughs> container right. of milk, oh right? <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> so, not only is saving emissions and saving gas, but you're also healthier. There are billions of us across this country. And if we all start taking small steps, they add up pretty quickly. Right. I do. I do like that. I like that. I mean, you're making me feel very optimistic about my personal impact on something that feels very out of reach for many people, you know, air quality is just like, yeah, it's not something you can hold in your hands, you know, so it's, it's overwhelming. So many people feel a sense of like apocalypse fatigue. I don't know if you've heard that yeah. term, but for people who are very much aware of the impact of climate change and greenhouse emissions, it's a real issue, you know, like, am I doing enough? Am I able to contribute? Am I able to reduce my own personal footprint? So I think that's, I think that's great. You're giving a lot of like powerful messages, I guess, to empower people to make small changes that eventually impact local air quality. Maybe they won't be able to directly impact regional air quality, but if enough of us do it, like you said, we, we could help our regions meet the kinds of standards set by the federal government set by state. Yeah, and, it, and it has to be, you know, voluntary and personal responsibility have to be a piece of that pie. You know, they, right. they just do. There are so many of us on the planet and it's, it's getting smaller every day. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so we can, <laughs> we can certainly do our part. You know, I've heard a number of times that new year's resolutions don't work because people set unrealistic goals, you know? Right. And so if you start off with habits, Forming habits is a great way to make change. And if you start the habit of turning off your light <laughs> or, or you start the habit of turning down your thermostat and putting on a sweater, you know, or yeah. you know, those, those things become what, just what you do every day. Right. And it makes that next step. I, I, you know, I found in my personal life, it makes that next step a little bit easier. 
know. Right. A little personal discomfort in the short run leads to long-term benefits, not just for yourself, I guess, but for society as a whole. And I think that's something we struggle to internalize as a society. If I take one for the team, I am batting for everyone's survival. Yes. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's been a challenge in the greenhouse gas and the, the climate change conversation is that a certain number of people that will deny that it's even happening. Again, when I encounter those folks, I, I do like to make sure that they know that conservation, again, it's good for you in so many other ways. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in climate change. Saving gas, saving heating fuel oil, you know, not burning those fossil fuels not only uh, reduces greenhouse gases, which if people are sensitive to that, we don't even have to talk about it because it also reduces gases that are harmful to our health. Right. You know, like uh, the, the pollutants that form ground level ozone or those fine particles. Right. right? And, and if that doesn't concern you, conservation saves money. <laughs> so um, what I'm hearing is that, you know, in, in the space that you're in, which is quite polarizing, it's important in science communication and in public outreach to make sure your message reaches your audience, regardless of who your audience might be. How have you developed that skill and kind of like finding out what's important to these different kinds of audiences? Personally, I've gotten older and had children. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know, it is very much a, a path of personal growth. You know, you meet people where they're willing to listen to you is very important. Uh, when I was younger and, you know, these things were always very important to me. Maybe my mm -hmm. approach to communicating them with people just wasn't effective. Right. You know, we don't know what other people experience and we don't know what their situation is. For me to say everybody should bike and take transit while, you know, it's convenient and possible for me, for most of the people that live in our region, it is mm -hmm. not even possible. Yeah. And even in places where transit and walking may be possible because they live in an urban area, maybe their neighborhood mm -hmm. isn't safe enough, or maybe they don't feel safe enough to do that. Right. So, so, you know, public education campaigns can become ineffective very quickly if we don't at least acknowledge that although air pollution is, is a very personal experience and people experience it right where they are, you know, people have so many other experiences right where they are. That brings us to the end of part one. Wasn't that great? If you thought that that was insightful, stay tuned for part two coming in the next few weeks. I'm also going to hook you up with more resources in case you want to read up on the things Sean's team and the DVRPC are doing in our region. Check out the description box for more information. If you like this episode and want to hear more, you can follow us and subscribe to Mobility Minute to get new episodes every week. Connect with us on Instagram at MobilityMinutePod or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GMTMA to hear the latest news and updates from us throughout the week. You can also find us on our website at gmtma.org to access our resource library and learn more about what we do. That's gmtma.org. I'll drop all these links in the description box for you. Signing off, I'm Justine Rasho, and this is Greater Mercer TMA's Mobility Minute, a bite-sized podcast for people on the move. Thank you so much for joining me today, and happy travels.